Hello, nerds. Welcome to my new segment called A New Nerd in Nine, where I share the story of a nerd in history in about nine minutes. So for this first one, I want to discuss Rosalind Franklin as somebody who is a chemist and biologist. Her story definitely stands out to me um, as a woman tangled up in some fibers (laughs) for her day. So Rosalind Franklin was born in Notting Hill area of London on July 25th, 1920. Her father, Ellis, was a merchant banker and was said to have had very liberal political views. And he spent his evenings teaching at the Working Men's College. So he was teaching classes on subjects like electricity, magnetism, and the Great War. And he even became their vice principal for a time. Her mother, Muriel, helped raise the five children. So there was an older brother, David, and then younger siblings, Colin, Roland, and Jennifer. Her family was affluent and considered to be a very influential British family. Um, Her father's uncle, Herbert Samuel, was the home secretary in 1916. And a home secretary is uh, essentially responsible for things like international affairs in the country, immigration, citizenship, uh, national security. And he was the first known practicing Jew to serve on the British cabinet. So, you know, her fa- her family is Jewish, and this is in World War One, World War II time. So that's why that, that is of note. Her aunt, Helen Carolyn, was married to a gentleman who's the attorney general in the British Mandate of Palestine. She was involved in the women's suffrage movement and was later a member of what was called the London County Council. So that was like a local governing body at the time. Her uncle Hugh was also involved in the suffrage movement. From early on, the accounts of young Rosalind are that she's a very intelligent and gifted student. There's a quote that's attributed to her Aunt Helen um, saying, Rosalind is alarmingly clever. She spends all her time doing arithmetic for pleasure and invariably gets her sums right. (laughs) At the age of six, she joined her brother Roland at the Norland Play School, where she is said to have developed a fondness for sports, particularly cricket and hockey. So I can get behind her on that one. At the age of nine, she went to the Lindor School for Young Ladies in Sussex. And at the age of 11, she transferred back into London to the St. Paul's Girls School which was one of the few schools at the time that would teach girls physics and chemistry. There, it said she excelled in science and Latin, as well as sports, and she learned German and French. Apparently, her only weak subject in this education portfolio was music, but regardless, she passed her matriculation. Uh, And for those of you who don't know, matriculation is kind of like graduation here in, in the U.S., in terms of it's a formal process to enter university. So she graduated in 1938 and she was awarded a scholarship. From there, she went to Cambridge and she was in chemistry with a group that's called the NST. She was awarded second class honors on her final exams in 1941. And at the time that was accepted basically as a bachelor's in terms of going out to get employed. Um, Cambridge at the time did not award bachelor's or master's degrees to women. That didn't happen until 1947. So she graduated 1941 with what was essentially a bachelor's. She spent the next year 
at the college as a research fellow in a physical chemistry lab, and she was working for a gentleman named Roland Norrish, but without much success. So based on what I read, it sounds like they kind of just didn't get along. So in 1942, she actually began working as an associate research officer at the British Coal Utilization Research Association. And her work there led to her PhD thesis, which is entitled The Physical Chemistry of Solid Organic Colloids with Special Reference to Coal. And she was awarded her doctorate in 1945. A couple years later, in 1947, she joined a Jacques pairing at, and I apologize to anyone fluent in French, I'm going to attempt this. She was at the Laboratoire Central des Services Chimiques de l'État in Paris. Here she learned how to apply x-ray crystallography to amorphous substances, and she used it to analyze coal and other carbon materials. Later in 1950, she was given a three-year fellowship back in London at King's College, and a year later she began as a research associate in the Medical Research Council's Biophysics Unit, reporting to John Randall. Although she'd been brought in initially to research something else. Randall actually directed her to work on DNA fibers. This was the like super hot topic of the time, and she was the only experienced experimental diffraction researcher that was known to be at King's College during that time frame. So there were others in the lab as well that she was working with. One of her fellow researchers named Maurice Wilkins, it said they didn't particularly get along, and that will come into play later on. Meanwhile, their work on DNA is continuing, and they begin to suspect a helical structure. And one of her 1951 lectures actually included a note that stated, the results suggest a helical structure which must be very closely packed, containing two, three, or four coaxial nucleic acid chains per unit, and having the phosphate groups near the outside. By January 1953, her conclusions were that there was, in fact, a double helical backbone. Later that month, that same month, January 1953, a certain James Watson happened to be at King's College and was going to discuss his DNA work with Franklin's colleague Wilkins. He apparently first came came across Franklin working in her lab, and I guess, (laughs) decided to criticize her work. So when he was met with a less than welcoming response to that, he left and he did go find Wilkins. From there, it said that Watson and Wilkins had essentially a little show and tell session in which Wilkins showed Watson some of Franklin's work unbeknownst to her and without her permission. Interestingly enough, by mid-February, a Francis Crick happens to receive a report that was written for a review to take place at King's College, which contained many of Franklin's calculations. So somehow, information is leaking out everywhere regarding DNA work. Meanwhile, you know, Franklin's still working on her stuff, and she's written some manuscripts which she had sent out for review, and they reached Copenhagen on March 6, 1953, which was one day prior to Watson and Crick completing their DNA model. On April 25th, 1953, Watson and Crick published their now famous work on DNA, 
which then led them to receive a Nobel Prize. The only item of note regarding Franklin and Wilkins was one footnote in their publication. So they received a Nobel Prize and she got a footnote in their publication. Okay. This slight did not seem to stop her. In 1955, she published regarding work she had completed on the tobacco mosaic virus, RNA. She is traveling and meeting with other scientists in the early 50s, but in 1956, she begins to suspect that there's something wrong with her. She's got a health concern. So she goes to the hospital, meets with doctors, and ends up learning she has ovarian cancer. They performed a surgery and found two tumors in her abdomen, and she began cancer treatment. Despite these health concerns. She goes on to publish seven more papers in 1956 and six more the following year. And in 1957, she begins working on poliovirus uh, and actually <laughs> live virus, which was concerning for some of those around her. But she's doing this work with the support of a grant from the U.S., but ends up having to cease because her health begins to decline very rapidly. She does pass away on April 16th, 1958. Something that was interesting uh, while reading about her was that depending on the source, the description of her was like dramatically different. So from colleagues, she was said to be unnerving. She would look people in the eye. She would maintain eye contact and she could be direct and sometimes impatient. Yet reports from her time in the U.S., she was described as like pleasant and great company, great to be around. So I guess like any of us, her relationships kind of varied, <laughs> depending. There is no account, though, of her having any kind of intimate relationship with anyone. It said she may have been infatuated with marrying from her time in Paris and also may have considered later on one of her postdoc students, a Donald Casper, to be someone she, quote, might have loved, but no evidence of any kind of long-term lasting intimate relationship. Throughout her life, she loved to travel. She enjoyed being outdoors. She loved hiking. Uh, that kind of came up early on with her sports. She was thought to be agnostic, so not particularly interested in religious faith. And that skepticism seemed to have developed early on, not through like influence of others. She is quoted to have said when discussing the existence of God, well, anyhow, how do you know he isn't she? I, I loved that. I thought that was great. So despite being robbed of her life's work to become nothing more than a footnote in one of the greatest scientific discoveries in recent times, as it pertains to DNA, she did continue to contribute to her field with other studies, and she still became a legend in a man's world. She has been honored with a great deal of awards, and one of my favorite has to be in 2019, the University of Portsmouth, which is located in Hampshire, England, actually renamed their James Watson Halls to the Rosalind Franklin Halls. So take that, Watson. 